The list of innocent victims of Putin's war against Ukraine keeps growing. The lead starts right now. Only 12 miles from Poland, Russian shelling continuing to pummel Ukrainian citizens, cities, and towns while getting closer and closer to a NATO ally where U.S. troops are deployed. Then, getting some help from a friend, two U.S. officials tell CNN that Russia asked China for military and economic help in their invasion. This is the U.S. National Security Advisor meets with a top Chinese diplomat. Plus, she opened her home to a Ukrainian girl for a student exchange program. Now, 20 years later, she's opening her home again to that same woman, now grown, and her children who are fleeing Putin's war. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with our world lead today. Multiple explosions rocking the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv today. A Russian airstrike hit a residential apartment building in the Kyiv suburbs this morning. Firefighters raced to evacuate survivors amidst the flames and wreckage. Ukraine's emergency services says preliminary information suggests at least one person was killed, six others injured. Dozens of residents were thankfully able to safely escape. While Russian forces appeared to be gaining ground on Kyiv last week, today a senior Pentagon official says almost all of the Russian advances around the capital of Kyiv remain stalled. This is a bird's eye view of what's left of Mariupol in the southeast of Ukraine. After weeks of Russian bombardment, Ukrainian officials say more than 2,500 people have died in that town alone since the Russian invasion began. 2,500. Moments ago, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said it appears Russia is broadening its targets into western Ukraine. One of the latest examples, cruise missiles launched at a Ukrainian military center just 12 miles from the border with Poland. Poland, of course, a key NATO ally. Also today, a heartbreaking update to an attack we reported on last week. The woman in this photograph seeing being carried out of a Mariupol maternity and children's hospital after a Russian strike has now died. Efforts to save her baby through an emergency cesarean section were also sadly unsuccessful. Two more of the innocent victims of Vladimir Putin's unprovoked war on an independent, sovereign country. CNN's Sam Kiley starts off our coverage today from Kyiv. And Sam, you've been hearing explosions throughout the day in Kyiv. What do we know about potential damages and casualties? Well, we understand, uh, uh, Jake, that uh, there was an attack uh, in the west of the city, fairly routine now, sadly, attacks in the west and northwest in particular, uh, where uh, an apartment building was struck. In addition to that, the Antonov uh, aircraft factory was also hit with some kind of missiles. But in the the, the strike that hit an apartment, uh, local authorities here said that two people had been killed and at least seven badly injured. The two bodies were found uh, inside the building. Just the latest uh, uh, civilian deaths in the ongoing uh, fairly random attacks that we're seeing across uh, the capital. We were uh, also in the west of uh, the town doing another story that we're going to bring you later on uh, this evening, Jake. Uh, And about 500 metres away, another missile, this time one we believe that had been downed by uh, surface-to-air anti-missile missiles, Uh, nonetheless impacted on the ground. Mercifully, nobody was hurt. There were a few relatively minor injuries and a lot of destruction, but it's just yet another, again, example of this profligate disregard for civilian lives here. Mostly, though, the the city's breath is rather being held by what may start to happen or increase to happen in the east, in the towns or satellite town of Bovary uh, to the east uh, and elsewhere. There's increasing signs that the Russians are building up for some kind of significant assault which is anticipated the next few days in the east of the city and then 
Of course, people are very anxious indeed about the southern routes being cut off. Clearly, the Russian plan here is if they can't capture Kiev, may well be to try to besiege it, Jake. Sam, what do we know about the state of diplomatic talks between Russia and Ukraine? Well, they are advancing. They're continuing. <clears throat> Today, they were continuing via uh, by remote uh, discussions rather than the face-to-face discussions in Belarus and elsewhere that we have seen between delegations from Russia and the Ukrainians. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the, pre- the president here, saying that they had entered something of a difficult phase, but they are talking, getting potentially into uh, details. Now, that is potentially a good sign if their people on both sides are able to start talking about modalities and structures. Perhaps conceivably uh, there might be uh, talks about a ceasefire, probably is the greatest thing that could be hoped for. But a small sign uh, potentially of hope is that 160 private vehicles were able to get out of Mariupol and escape towards Zaporizhia in the southeast of the country. Uh, We don't know exactly how many people that involved. This was a not a humanitarian convoy. It was kind of uh, uh, people taking it into their own hands and taking a risk themselves to try and get out. Uh, but it seems that that convoy got through. It wasn't at least massively attacked by the Russians. So that's a positive sign. But then on the negative side, again, a humanitarian convoy for yet another day trying to get in. They've been trying to get in for another week, for about a week now. Uh, was stopped about 50 miles outside of Mariupol by the Russians, and that was unable to get food, water, and other supplies into a city that is, frankly, on its knees, Jake. Sam Kiley, live in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you. Please stay safe. President Biden could soon travel to Europe to meet with key allies about the Russian war on Ukraine. Sources tell CNN that White House officials are in the early stages of exploring possible stops. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, news of a potential trip comes as CNN learns Ukraine's president directly appealed to President Biden, asking him to add more sanctions on more oligarchs and to cut Putin and Russia further off from both international trade and international waterways. As Russia widens its assault on Ukraine, President Biden is weighing a trip to Europe to showcase America's support as the U.S. sees the effects of the invasion at home. Make no mistake. The current spike in gas prices is largely the fault of Vladimir Putin. The diplomatic visit has yet to be finalized, but discussions are underway following Biden's 49-minute call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, who pressed Biden to take further steps to cut Russia off from international trade, continue targeting Russian elite, and close off Russia's access to international waterways. Zelensky will address U.S. lawmakers in a virtual speech to Congress on Wednesday, where he's expected to request more assistance. We're thrilled. It's such a privilege to have this leader of this country where these people are fighting for their democracy and our democracy. Lawmakers from both parties have continued to push the Biden administration to fulfill Zelensky's request for more fighter jets, which so far the Pentagon has rejected as a high-risk effort. My personal feeling is we should provide those planes because they are potentially very important to the Ukrainian defense. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan sat down with China's top diplomat in Rome today after CNN reported that Russia sought China's help with military equipment and economic assistance amid crippling sanctions. We are communicating directly, privately to Beijing that there will absolutely be consequences for 
large-scale sanctions evasion efforts or support uh, to Russia to backfill them. U.S. officials say Russian President Putin has been frustrated by the sluggishness of his advance in Ukraine amid concerns that he may now turn to chemical weapons. Vladimir Putin is frustrated by the fact that his forces are not making the kind of progress that he thought that they would make against major cities, including Kyiv. Although negotiations between Russia and Ukraine are expected to continue Tuesday, U.S. officials say that for now there is no evidence that Putin is changing course. Uh, so far, it appears that Vladimir Putin is intent on destroying Ukraine. We need to help Ukrainians in every way we can. Now, Jake, on that meeting that the national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, had with a top Chinese diplomat today, we are told it was intense. It lasted for about seven hours, and obviously Ukraine was a big part of that discussion. And officials coming out of that meeting are saying that they have deep concerns about China's alignment with Russia, though, Jake, they are refusing to comment on whether or not the U.S. does believe China is open to providing that assistance to Russia at this time. Of course, whether or not that's economic assistance or military equipment. And they've also declined to say whether or not China has provided Russia with any assistance since this invasion of Ukraine began, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins with the White House for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Senator Jackie Rosen of Nevada. She's on the Senate Armed Services Committee, also on the Senate Homeland Security Committee. Um, Senator, thanks for joining us. You, you've called for the U.S. to work with its allies to transfer uh, those Polish fighter jets to Ukraine. The Biden administration seemed to consider the proposal from Poland to, to do that last week before ultimately rejecting it. Has anyone in the Biden administration given you a satisfactory answer uh, for, for why they backed off that? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And as I watch, of course, the news uh, all along in the last few weeks, but particularly the segment before me, I can tell you that we have to do everything we can to support the brave and resilient people of Ukraine against the brutal, inhumane, uh, unprovoked attack by Vladimir Putin. And so we have to do everything we can. Right now, giving the planes to Ukraine, the president is still resistant. I believe that we can work with our allies and partners to provide the proper kind of support or equipment that they need through our allies and partners. We need to give Ukraine all the tools that they need on the ground to be successful to stop Vladimir Putin and his regime. President Biden, has he or anybody in his administration given you any sort of satisfactory answer as to why they won't participate or help Poland deliver these plans? I think that they're continuing to work with their NATO allies, trying to find a back channel without uh, provoking World War III. Uh, these are some of the things that he's working on. We're trying to press them on this. Uh, as you've seen, some of my colleagues have been in Poland and Germany and other Eastern European countries over the past few weeks pressing the humanitarian aid, the military aid. Last week, we passed the omnibus, about $14 billion with military and humanitarian aid uh, for Ukraine. We need to continue to supply all the support that Ukraine needs because Vladimir Putin must be stopped and he must see that the whole world, the whole entire world is against him and we will not stand for this type of behavior unprovoked against a sovereign democratic country. Your Republican colleague, Senator Lindsey Graham, said today that if Russia uses chemical weapons against the Ukrainians, he would then support the U.S. Uh, creating and enforcing a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Would you? What, what's your red line for uh, a, a, a no-fly zone? 
Well, let's be clear. If Vladimir Putin decides to use chemical warfare, that is a violation of international, it's, an, it's a war crime. And so he will be prosecuted to the fullest extent. And so if he chooses to cross that line, we will have to determine what the appropriate response is. To this point, he has not done that. But if he does, I believe that we'll have to, uh, with members of Congress, both houses, working with the administration, NATO, the United Nations, determine what the best course of action is going forward. Let's hope he doesn't cross it. Don't you think he's already committed war crimes? I mean, there have been unprovoked attacks on, on civilian buildings, maternity hospitals. I mean, there are a lot of individuals who think what he's done already uh, has been something that should be referred to the International Criminal Court. I do believe he's committed war crimes as he's attacked civilians, like you said, maternity hospitals. We saw in your prior piece the sad, horrible story of a pregnant woman trying to be saved, her and her baby unable to save them. We saw them being carried on a stretcher. This is someone's wife. She may have other children. This is also someone's child. And so we see horror after horror go on and on. I do believe he has he has committed war crimes. We must find every way to stop him without entering World War III. That's what we're working on now. There's some other things I'm working on. I am the only former computer programmer in the United States Senate, so I've sent a letter with 20 of my colleagues to Secretary Mayorkas of the Department of Homeland Security to be sure that we're ready for any cyber attacks on our critical infrastructure that may come our way as a matter of retaliation for the uh, support that we're giving Ukraine and the Ukrainian people or to our NATO allies also in support of Ukraine and the region. And we're hoping that Secretary Mayorkas, along with our cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, will be able to provide us with uh, what they're working on to prevent, mitigate any cyber attacks, and if they need any resources to help us in that regard, because we're sure we haven't seen the last of Vladimir Putin's brutality. On that topic, you led a bipartisan group of senators in sending a letter to the Biden administration today yeah. asking for details on, on how to protect the country from Russian cyber attacks, not to mention disinformation campaigns. Who exactly do you think could be a, a target? Uh, are we talking about government websites, private companies? What do you think is most vulnerable, most likely to be hit? Well, I think you've seen Russia do the solar winds attack. So you saw that that was on some of our critical infrastructure. We've seen some uh, intrusions in what they call the Log 4J uh, shell and, uh, excuse me, and subroutines. We've seen incursion after incursion. So I want to be sure that Department of Homeland Security is marshalling all of its resources to give them out to our uh, public-private partnerships in particular for our critical electric grids, our water infrastructure, any of our pipelines. It's important that they are on their highest, uh, highest guard right now and that they have all the tools and resources that they need. Of course, our government agencies already have this information. We want to be sure everyone is uh, not just uh, promoting the best cyber hygiene, but if they see any uptick in activity of malicious events, then they need to let us know immediately so that we can do everything we can to prevent or mitigate it. And that's um, that's why we sent the letter. Like I said, Senator Mike Rounds and I sent that along with 20 of our colleagues hoping mm -hmm. to hear back from uh, we. They got confirmation that they received the letter last night. We hope to hear back from them in the next few days as to um, their plans. Mm -hmm. Democratic Senator Jackie Rosen of Nevada, thank you so much. Appreciate your time, Senator. They met in Orlando, Florida, as part of a student exchange program. Now, 20 years later, this woman and her children are trading the terror of war 
for the safety of a longtime friend across the ocean. That's next. Plus, a bold move while Russia cracks down on anyone speaking out against the invasion of Ukraine. That's ahead. In our world lead today, more than 2.8 million Ukrainians, 2.8 million, have fled the country since Russia began its brutal invasion on February 24th. That's according to the latest United Nations estimates. And while pressure is mounting for the Biden administration to do more to help Ukrainians, CNN's Rosa Flores spoke to one mother whose harrowing tale brought her and her two children from Kiev all the way to Orlando, Florida. When Yulia Gerbut fled Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, with her sons, 11-year-old Nikita and 14-year-old Max, she packed what she could, including this candle. You can't imagine how many times I kissed this candle. I have sausage. And she came here to Orlando, Florida, to stay with Megan Yokas, a woman who 20 years ago hosted Yulia during a student exchange program. She really has been like a daughter. A daughter who loved life with her boys in her Kiev home. But in the early morning of February 24th, bombs started going off and Yulia called her host mom. While talking to her, I saw the explosion from my bedroom window and that's when I was really scared. Yulia says she had to hang up. It's very emotional. I can't fathom what she went through. Somebody I love. Yulia and the boys rushed to the one room in the house with no windows. They were shocked. Nikita started crying. Hours later, more signs of war. We saw this helicopter which was throwing fire rockets from both sides of it. What did you think? My house will be bombed like next second. What was your biggest fear? That she wouldn't make it out. That she would die? Possibly. As Yulia drove away with Nikita and Max, she agonized over leaving her third son, Martin, behind. The grave of my son is left there. And obviously I can't take him with me. Martin died of cancer in 2019. He was four years old. And how does a mother fleeing war take her baby's grave with her? It was... You know, breaking my heart that he's he's staying in some way. And you don't know, maybe the bomb will fall down on the cemetery. After four days of traffic jams, a stop at a shelter guarded by Ukrainian military, and eating at outdoor mass feeding kitchens, they ended up at a refugee camp in Slovakia. I was absolutely shocked. What shocked you? A couple hundreds of people in one room, everybody's speaking, kids are crying. After escaping their new reality at home, they fled to Orlando. And last week, Yulia enrolled her sons in school. The images of war still fresh in their minds. I heard explosions and I heard shooting. Uh, I was super scared and the first like two, three hours of driving. I was listening to every sound and begging to not hear those explosions. What is Russia doing to your country? Genocide. That's, that's what it is. They are just burning our cities and our 
people destroying us. Yulia fears for the life of her 72-year-old father who's in Maripol, a city where civilian buildings, including the maternity hospital where Yulia was born, have come under shelling. Thousands have died. I haven't heard from my dad for 12 days. I don't know if he's alive. Despite the fog of war, this mother says, in a way, she managed to bring little Martin with her. I can light the candle and, you know, pretend he is with us. So no matter where we will end up, we'll have a candle to light. And even though Yulia and her boys are safe here in Orlando, their future is still uncertain. They've been volunteering uh, to help Ukrainian relief efforts and Ukrainian organizations. And Jake, uh, Yulia, of course, thinking about um, her son Martin that is still, his grave still in Ukraine, and knowing that they are hoping to go back to Ukraine at some point. Rosa Flores, live for us in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Russia is reportedly asking for help from China. Coming up next, what the U.S. is telling China about that request from the Russians. Stay with us. And our world lead, the White House has yet to say if the Biden administration today took advantage of a high-stakes meeting to press China about Putin's request of President Xi for Chinese military assistance for Russia in its attack on Ukraine. A senior U.S. official does say that the meeting between Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, and a top Chinese diplomat was intense and lasted seven hours. We're told Sullivan conveyed to China the potential negative outcomes of assisting Russia in its war with Ukraine. This conversation comes, as sources tell CNN, the Kremlin is asking China for help, economic and military, including drones, to use in its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. CNN's David Culver is in Shanghai, China for us. And David, the, the Chinese government is expressing some openness to Putin's request, which seems rather significant. And that's according to several U.S. cables and U.S. officials telling CNN, yeah, that they're considering this, Jake. It's incredibly significant if especially they take action and provide either that military or economic aid to their northern neighbors. Uh, somebody who President Xi considers to be his best friend. Those are his words in describing President Putin. I think it's especially significant when you consider where China has come in all of this even before the invasion. Of course, publicly they have said that the Kremlin has legitimate security concerns when it comes to NATO's eastward expansion. They've backed them in in a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the propaganda, certainly regurgitating what Russian state media is saying uh, by replaying that right here in China to the domestic audience. But then they've also tried to create this role of saying, well, we're neutral players as well. We want to be peacekeepers. We want to mediate between Ukraine and Russia. Now it seems we've come to a point, Jake, where they may actually have to take a stance. China may come out here and say where explicitly they're going to fall in all of this by the actions they take in the next days or weeks. Now, you mentioned that high stakes meeting that played out just a few hours ago in Rome. That was between, as you mentioned, Jake Sullivan and his Chinese counterpart, a man, by the way, whose name is Yang Jiechi. This guy is significant because of the role he plays here in China. He's part of the party, not necessarily part of the government, an extension of that, even higher up, has more influence, has the ear of President Xi Jinping. He's a key advisor on foreign diplomacy and policy. And so he's going to no doubt come back here to Beijing with what was discussed there. 
And one thing that Chinese have been adamant about is they don't want to be uh, spoken down to in all of this. They don't want to be told what to do. And so it's very likely that they're looking for not only the U.S., but EU partners to come at this in a unified way. And then perhaps China can figure out a way to defuse the Ukraine situation, Jake, and at the same time try to save face with their northern neighbors, Russia. Mm. David Culver, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Reporting from Shanghai. A provocative and courageous move from an anti-war protester in Russia. Watch her bold and brave act during a primetime broadcast on Russian state TV this evening. That sign reads in Russian, quote, no war, stop the war, do not believe propaganda, they tell you lies here, unquote. The last line of the sign read, quote, Russians against war, unquote. The program appeared to quickly cut away to video. At this hour, it's unclear what happened to this woman after her onset protest. Russia, of course, does not allow freedom of speech. I want to bring in CNN international diplomatic editor Nick Robertson, who's in London today after reporting for weeks from inside Russia. Um, Do we know, uh, Nick, if anti-war protesters such as this woman have gotten the attention of Vladimir Putin? You would expect this one would be brought to Vladimir Putin's attention, even if he isn't watching the TV all the time himself. The country's just, in, you know, enforced and put in place these new, very strict measures. Journalists were arrested who were covering the anti-war protests just this past weekend. They were arrested in numbers, and that's been a significant change. Um, it would seem very likely that uh, this lady working at the TV station there, um, we understand she is being detained right now, will face the full force of that law, because if you pull out one of those posters, even one just this size that says no to war on the streets, you will face uh, being rounded up and hauled off by the police uh, and potentially charged. So it would seem likely that she's going to face a much stiffer penalty. Putin is not going to be happy about this, not just with her, but of course, the whole security at this prime state TV channel, uh, Russia One. And this is this is the nation's premier main TV outlet, the place he wants Russians to get all their information, not as he would see it as disinformation. Today, today, uh, Nick, uh, Fox uh, reports uh, that one of its correspondents, Benjamin Hall, uh, has been wounded uh, while reporting near Ukraine's capital of Kiev. Um, This after we see Russians uh, lying about the American journalists killed in Ukraine earlier. Uh, Today, Russia's ambassador to the U.N. said that journalist Brett Raynaud was not a journalist and they called him a filmmaker and they said he was killed by Ukrainian forces not Russian forces. Renaud was a journalist. He was also a documentary filmmaker. But, you know, Nick, not only does the chief of police in Kiev say that the shooters were Russians, other journalists in that convoy who survived say it was Russians shooting them who killed him at that checkpoint. We should be absolutely clear here, Jake. Uh, Russia wants to stamp out any information that it doesn't regard as legitimate. And independent Western journalists uh, are exactly the sort of message that Russia calls fake news. They accuse uh, Western independent journalists in Ukraine of siding with the military there. And when they say that, that makes them justifiable targets. Uh, There should be no doubt in anyone's mind that the way Putin treats his press at home by subjugating them, by running his own state essentially 
propaganda enterprise through state media and shutting down all independent voices is exactly the way uh, international independent media are being viewed by Russian forces inside Ukraine right now. They are not uh, in the Russian or Putin's eyes there to uh, explain to the world what's happening. They are in Putin's eyes there to spread disinformation, information he doesn't want his population or anyone else to have. Um, It's is quite clear that Russia will go to great lengths to stifle those voices, arresting people at home and in Ukraine, clearly much worse. Yeah, we all know how credible Vladimir Putin is. He's the one that said that Russia had no intention of invading Ukraine. Um, Nick, on Russia's request to China for aid, uh, this comes as CNN reports that almost all of Putin's advances, advancements in Ukraine have stalled, at least at this point. Um, how do you read Putin's ask of China? Is it a sign of desperation? It's a sign that he needs help. Um, he needs to know that that help is there to plan his next moves. Uh, we know that the sort of relationship that he has with China is one that's deep, it's strategic. If you read the sort of last main principal document that the two countries issued a year ago outlining what they call their strategic coordination and again the one that they they released just before the olympics uh, a month or so ago um they see themselves as being in lockstep if putin cannot at this stage count on president xi for that support economic to escape the burden of some of the sanctions uh, it won't help much but it may help uh, militarily it does indicate uh, that maybe he isn't falling short at the moment, but to continue the pressure and the attrition that is with, that he's getting at the moment, that, he's, that he is going to need that help. Is it a sign of weakness? Um, I, I don't think you can read it as weakness at the moment because I, the two countries do seem to still walk the same strategic, coordinated path that they've talked about for the past, past number of years. Nick Robertson, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A heartbreaking update to that Russian attack on the maternity and children's hospital in Ukraine. That story next. Sticking with our world lead, you might remember this heart-wrenching image of a pregnant woman on a makeshift stretcher in Ukraine. This is after Russia bombed a maternity hospital in Mariupol last week. CNN learned today that the mom and her baby did not survive. And as CNN's Phil Black reports, this tragedy has become a defining depiction of Putin's ruthless campaign. A warning to our viewers, this report includes disturbing images. We don't know this woman's name, but we can see the desperate effort to rescue her from the devastation of Mariupol's maternity hospital. She's hurt. There are terrible injuries down her right side. She appears dazed by the enormous blast that hit here only moments before, but she's conscious and clearly concerned for her baby. At another medical facility, doctors worked to save them as their condition deteriorated. Surgeon Tima Marin says they tried to resuscitate the woman while also performing a caesarean delivery. They couldn't revive her or her child. They both died. Russian officials claimed the hospital was being used by Ukrainian troops and all civilians had left before the attack. The evidence shows that's not true. Children, patients, staff all experienced the terrifying blast that created this crater. We do know this woman's name, Mariana Vishagaskaya. 
hurt and bleeding, she walked through the chaos after the explosion. The next day, she gave birth in another hospital. She and her husband have named their daughter Veronica. The strike on Mariupol's maternity hospital has become a defining moment in a war already notorious for its brutality and great suffering inflicted on the innocent. Phil Black, CNN, London. And our thanks to Phil Black for that report. Two major cities in China are going into lockdown as COVID spikes again in that country. What might this mean for COVID restrictions closer to home? Stay with us. In our healthy news signs, the U.S. is quickly approaching the endemic phase of COVID. Average weekly cases have now dropped more than 95 percent from their mid-January Omicron peak. This is the lowest cases have been in about eight months. We're also learning more about when the vaccine will finally be available for children under five. Let's discuss all of it with Dr. Megan Ranney. She's an associate dean of public health at Brown University. Dr. Ranney, thanks for joining us. So Pfizer says it hopes to have a vaccine for kids under five by May. This is something that a lot of parents have been anxiously anticipating for years now. But as the country opens up and with mask mandates going away, are you worried that parents might not feel the same urgency to get their young kids vaccinated? We've already seen lower vaccination rates among 5 to 11-year-olds than among 12 to 17-year-olds. And I fully expect that we're going to see the same patterns for these younger children. There's going to be a small portion of parents who have been waiting on pins and needles to get their kids vaccinated. But the majority, I'm betting, are not going to get their shots for their kids until it's time for that yearly check up, their pediatrician recommends it, or God forbid, there's another surge. I just hope that if and when these vaccines do get approved for the younger age groups, and I'll say I'm tracking not just Pfizer, but also Moderna, which supposedly has some promising data, I hope that we can be consistent in our messaging about the value that these vaccines provide in protecting our youngest members of society from a largely preventable illness, long-term disability, and death. Pfizer's CEO said that adults in the U.S. are definitely going to need a fourth dose of the vaccine to help defend against any future COVID waves. Explaining that protection from the third shot doesn't last very long. Um, What does this tell you about the possibility for future surges and future variants? So this is yet more evidence that we're likely going to have to approach the COVID shots the same way that we approach flu shots or other types of vaccines that require more regular boosters. The coronavirus that makes up COVID, that causes COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, it's mutating so quickly, and it does seem that those antibodies are not sticking around as long as we'd hoped. A shot every year is something that many of us do already for flu. Again, time will tell. There are other vaccines in development. But for now, I think we should expect that when fall comes, many of us will go and get a fourth shot. The Chinese government is reporting the highest number of daily cases in that country since the initial Wuhan outbreak in early 2020. Two major Chinese cities have now been placed under lockdown for at least a week. Is this latest surge in China something that Americans and the rest of the world should be concerned about? You know, I'm not deeply worried about China. First of all, they're reporting about 3,000 cases a day. Remember, here in the U.S., we're still well over 30,000 cases a day. Uh, Second, The Chinese have received, by and large, less effective vaccines. For all the debate about the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines that we've had here in the U.S., remember, they are so much more effective than the ones that are being offered elsewhere in the world right now. 
And the third thing is our healthcare system, for all its faults, is better prepared than that in China. What I'm watching much more closely, Jake, is actually the cases and hospitalization rates in Europe, where there are some concerning signs in the UK and the Netherlands about new surges. I'm watching to see how high those go, how high hospitalizations go, and how long those last. I think that will be a better bellwether for us here in the United States. So last Friday marked the second anniversary of the World Health Organization acknowledging that COVID it was a pandemic. Uh, in the U.S., deaths uh, and hospitalizations and, and cases are all going down. The CDC expects them to continue to decrease. Do you think we are in the endemic phase of COVID now? In other words, we learn to live with it. Um, and, and how would we know when it's the endemic phase? So the endemic phase just means that we're not seeing surges anymore. It's too soon to say. Endemic does not mean harmless. Clearly, we as a country have made a decision to move on from those non-pharmaceutical interventions, from things like masks. Time will tell what happens with future surges. And, and at the end of the day, I'm watching my hospital and my hospital beds. Dr. Megan Rainey, thank you so much. Good to see you again. The littlest victims trapped by war, waiting to meet their moms and dads outside of Ukraine. CNN visits a nursery caring for surrogate babies in the middle of a war zone. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a multi-city manhunt underway for the suspect wanted for shooting homeless men while they sleep. Police in New York and Washington, D.C. now say the same man is behind five such incidents two of which resulted in murder. Plus, precious cargo trapped by war. Shelling happening just yards away from a nursery caring for surrogate babies born in Ukraine, but destined for families in other countries. And leading this hour with breaking news, Ukraine's capital under siege, relentless shelling, rocking Kiev, and Russia hitting new targets in the western part of the country, this time only 12 miles from the border of a NATO country. Russian airstrikes are also pounding the area around Mykolaiv, a key maritime city in the south of Ukraine, along the Black Sea. A Russian military strike hit a school in one nearby village, reducing it to rubble and smoke. In another suburb, shelling killed at least two people and injured 10 more, according to a local community Facebook post. CNN international security editor Nick Payton Walsh joins us now live from Mykolaiv. Nick, what effect is this bombardment having on civilians there? I mean, it's startling, I have to say, that this time of night, the city is absolutely dead. Apart from just in the minutes before we started talking, Jake, the skyline behind me lit up by the kind of roar of the sound of incoming rockets, quite a distance away from where I'm standing on the other side of the river that splits this city and makes it quite so strategic. But we've seen throughout the day a city awash with ambulances whizzing around doing their business. And yesterday, uh, a horrifying rocket attack that hit outside a busy supermarket. People standing there simply queuing for food at the rare opportunities they could get hold of it. Nine killed in that instance and shop windows blown out. I met the recently created widow from that attack at a nearby hospital and she talked about how she and her husband had been there getting uh, supplies for the funeral of their daughter who'd recently died and she horrifyingly described how she'd seen her uh, husband's face heavily injured uh, and the blood was still there 
nearby where we stood ourselves. And this is essentially part of a daily routine for people in Mykolaiv now. It's rare for a day to pass where some sort of part of the civilian infrastructure hasn't been hit by this relatively indiscriminate rocket fire we're seeing from the outskirts. It's clear Russian forces haven't been able to get into the city. They've tried again and again, and they keep being pushed back. And their response to that and their frustration is voiced by the kind of rocket fire we've just heard in the distance over there, Jake. Why are these coastal cities so strategic in this fight? Yeah, I mean, there's two answers to that, really. I think possibly as a kind of cultural goal, if Vladimir Putin really thinks he can occupy Ukraine, he can't do it without Odessa, the Russian-speaking cultural heart that sits on the Black Sea coast, where so many Russians have been on vacation for decades. That's an integral part of any plan, warped as it may be, he may have for Ukraine. But the Black Sea coast is economically utterly vital. And I'm on the second largest port city, Mykolaiv. Now, Kherson, they've already taken to the far east. That's seen massive protests across it, intensifying, frankly, rather than ebbing, uh, as Russia puts in forces there. Mykolaiv has been exceptionally stubborn, remarkable, frankly, for a city of this size to hold an army the size of Russia's so far out of it. The bombardment has been phenomenal. But we are seeing now a bid by Russia to move to the north of this city. I was told that essentially they've recognised by a Ukrainian military source, they've recognised they can't take the bridges here without them being blown and the river's too wide. And instead they're moving to the north where they could potentially make their own bridge and then head around this city, encircle it perhaps, and then focus their efforts towards Odessa. I've got to tell you, Jake, that's an enormous task, frankly, for the kind of resources Russia's put here, but their ambition has always outstretched their capabilities so far in this conflict. And Mykolaiv is bearing the brunt of that with a sort of curious blundering we've seen by the Russian military around this city, uh, voiced by the artillery fire we hear randomly, but also, too, by these attempts, it seems, to continually get into the city uh, and wreak havoc on its civilian population, Jake. Nick, Russian airstrikes uh, are moving ever closer to the West, ever closer towards NATO territory, just 12 miles away from Poland. Um, Ukrainian President Zelensky, he says it's only a matter of time before those bombs end up dropping in a NATO country. Um, How much would that change the war? Well, I mean, it could potentially drag NATO, could drag Europe, could drag the United States into a broader multi dimensional years-long conflict with Russia. Now, there are many analysts who say that Russia is probably keen to avoid that. There are many analysts who say if Russia can't fuel its own tanks, how could it genuinely think it could take on uh, a reliance that represents possibly a billion people and has the largest military budget in human history? I mean, that's all the plain facts of the matter. But then there's the other question, Jake, of the state of mind of Vladimir Putin, who's undertaken something here which was preposterous, frankly, to anyone who observed it, the full invasion of Ukraine. Does that mean that he's currently capable of rationally deciding not to start a conflict with nuclear powers like those in the NATO alliance? Hard to tell and deeply troubling. Jake? Nick Payton Walsh reporting live for us in Mykolaiv, uh, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Please stay safe. More than 2.8 million people have now fled Ukraine. Many more remain stranded, including some of the most vulnerable. CNN's Sam Kiley reports on the fight to keep safe infants born to surrogate mothers in the middle of this war zone. This is precious cargo. Not cash in transit, but week-old baby Lawrence in transit to a new life. Born to a surrogate mother under bombardment in Kyiv. He is raced through the Ukrainian capital 
to a nursery in the southwest of the city. It's perilously close to Russian troops and easily within range of their artillery. This is a gauntlet his new German parents will have to run when, or if, they come here to collect him. For now, he'll be among 20 other surrogate babies destined, it's hoped, for new lives in Argentina, China, Spain, Italy, Canada, Austria and the US. Parting from the child she carried as a surrogate, Victoria is inevitably tearful. Her pain intensified by uncertainty. It is even harder that he is in a place where there's shelling. And when will his parents get to take him away because of it? It's really hard. This missile struck about 500 yards from the nursery while we were there. There are constant explosions we can even hear in the basement and the Russian military is reportedly consolidating and planning to push in further into the city from the east. So the future of these children is even more in doubt. How long will it be before it's impossible, completely impossible for their new parents to come and rescue them? The nannies here cannot join the exodus of civilians from Kyiv. These babies may be tiny, but they're the heaviest of responsibilities. Antonina's husband and daughter have already travelled to safety 130 miles south. These babies can't be abandoned. They're defenceless. They also need care. And we really hope that the parents will come and pick them up soon. An Argentine couple collected their child the day before. But a combination of the pandemic and now war has meant that some have been stuck here for months. It all depends on the strength of the parents' desire. I met with parents who came to Kiev to pick up their baby. They had tears in their eyes. They had waited 20 years for their baby. And there are such couples who are afraid because there is a war going on here. These infants are oblivious to the doubts over their future and the dangers that they've already survived. There's abundant hope that it stays that way. Let me bring uh, Sam back here. And Sam, the, the caretakers, uh, I can't even imagine the stress they're feeling to keep these babies safe, let, let alone warm, fed, loved, held. How are they holding up under all this pressure? Well, Jay, I mean, they're doing an extraordinary job. But many of them, as uh, we spoke there, you heard from Antonina, are, are staying on to look after these babies, even though their own families have been evacuated. Most of them uh, mothers, there's a group of about six or seven uh, full-time nannies there, and they have to work 24-7. Uh, as all parents know, babies, newborn babies are very hard work. I think one of the really striking things, though, being in that clinic myself, was that some of the older babies, there was a five, six-month-old uh, couple of boys there, and they were so desperate for human contact because, of course, in the baby's development, that, you know, a friendly smiling face and gripping of the fingers and so on are all the part of a baby's development that is going to be very, very hard for them to get when they are being careful. But I have to say that, you know, they were energetically being entertained 24-7. Uh, a very extraordinary effort going on there, Jake. Do the surrogate mothers have a, a safe place they can go to recuperate from labor and delivery? No, they go home. Uh, so Victoria, whom, to whom we spoke, once she's signed the papers to hand her the, the child that she had carried for the German couple that she was that are planning to come at some stage and uh, collect uh, young Lawrence, uh, she she was off home uh, to go and be re reunited with her family. Uh, she uh, has a 13-year-old daughter. 
uh, her husband was was with her and uh, she was going to go home and uh, begin her her life outside though of the capital she is going to a much safer place i hope it remains that way sam kylie reporting live from kiev ukraine thank you stay safe putin's Ruthless invasion of Ukraine sparking a dire warning from the United Nations. Fears of nuclear war. Then five homeless people shot, two of them killed while they were sleeping. And now police in New York and D.C. say the same suspect seems to be behind the attack. Stay with us. In our world lead, as Putin continues his bombardment, of innocent citizens, including women and children. Today, the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, is raising a different sort of alarm. Raising the alert of Russian nuclear forces is a bone-chilling development. The prospect of nuclear conflict, once unthinkable, is now back within the realm of possibility. In the realm of possibility, joining us now to discuss Rose Gattemola, the former Deputy Secretary General of NATO from 2016 to 2019, former Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security at the U.S. State Department. Secretary Gattemola, thank you for joining us. You negotiated the New START Treaty between the U.S. and Russia, which is a bilateral nuclear arms treaty. Having negotiated extensively with Russia, do you think Russia's goal here, Putin talking about nuclear weapons, etc., is, is simply to scare people, or do you think that Putin and others might be seriously considering deploying nuclear weapons? I think that they have taken steps to rat- rattle the nuclear saber, really, and part of it is uh, to scare people, to make uh, the world know that they are deadly serious in their intent to take over Ukraine. But at the same time, I've known the Russians to be responsible with regard to nuclear weapons in the past, certainly in terms of ensuring that they were secure and that they were safe from being stolen, for example. We worked with them a lot on that during the period after the break of the Soviet Union. So my knowledge of the Russians is that they've been top flight professionals in this area. So this nuclear saber rattling is really concerning from the Kremlin. Do you think that Vladimir Putin is different today Um, for whatever reason, a different calculus in terms of risk or something else than he was five years ago? He certainly seems to be monomaniacally focused at the moment on uh, the uh, invasion of Ukraine and recreating the Slavic heartland, including Russia, Belarus and Ukraine together in one big family. So he, in the past, I would say, had a much wider ranging and pragmatic agenda, at times even extending to cooperation uh, with NATO in some very intensive ways. So this uh, focus on Ukraine and this creation of NATO as the enemy, I would say, has really been the product of, of the last decade or so. What is the best tool of the U.S., of NATO, to deter Russia from further nuclear escalation? I think uh, so far the Biden administration and NATO itself has been doing a terrific job keeping the lid on, really being very uh, calm and serious about this, pointing to the dangers of of nuclear escalation, but really doing everything to ensure that there could be no miscues. Nothing could be misread from the U.S. or NATO side. And I know that they will continue to to take that very serious and very, uh, very careful approach. The Russians have taken over Chernobyl, the site of the worst nuclear accident uh, in the history of the world. And the staff there 
has stopped carrying out routine maintenance on safety equipment because the hundreds of personnel there are experiencing, quote, physical and psychological fatigue. That's according to the International Atomic Energy Agency, which says the staff manning the facility have not been able to rotate out since Russian forces entered the site nearly three weeks ago. What is Russia's endgame with Chernobyl, or, or might there not be one? I think in general, Russia has been going after nuclear facilities in Ukraine with this notion that uh, it draws attention to what they're doing. That's kind of easy wins for them in terms of bringing the the eye of the of the world uh, to them and to what they're doing in Ukraine. So part of it is is that I think uh, assurance that people are are frightened by by what they're up to. But on the other hand, they are also I think uh, looking in some sense for for a military objective, not at Chernobyl, but by seizing the operational nuclear power plants. Uh, as they did at Zaporozhye, they are looking for ways to uh, perhaps shut down the electricity grid in Ukraine because they get so much of their electricity from nuclear power. So I think they're, it's a combination of, uh, of goals that they have. Another thing that's going on is they've got this kind of crazy line now coming out of Moscow that, that Ukraine is after radiological weapons and that they want to use uh, nuclear waste to build uh, dirty bombs. I think this is total nonsense, but it is, I think, part of the, uh, part of the story from from the Kremlin's perspective. The Atomic Agency also says communication has been spotty and the area around Chernobyl is about to enter their annual fire season where spontaneous fires happen in what's called the exclusion zone. How worrisome is the potential of an unstable Chernobyl uh, for the surrounding area for greater Europe? I think the biggest problem here is uh, that uh, the, if the topsoil is uh, stirred up around Chernobyl, you could have some uh, radiation getting out into the atmosphere. And that's why they're so very careful when there are wildfires in the area to ensure that they are put out quickly so that there will not be the problem of, of the topsoil getting stirred up and perhaps uh, some, some dust getting into the atmosphere that would be radioactive in nature. In terms of the power plant itself, uh, the ruined power plant is, is enclosed in a sarcophagus. Very difficult, I think, to cause damage uh, to that. And so the thing that worries me most, as I said, is, is the topsoil getting spilled, uh, getting stirred up and, and causing some pollution in that way. Secretary Rose Gottemoller, thank you so much for your expertise and your time today. We appreciate it. One way to be a good neighbor, a Romanian man moved his restaurant operation to the Ukrainian border to give out free meals to refugees. That story's next. Staying in our world, lead the now nearly 3 million refugees fleeing Ukraine are putting quite a strain on neighboring countries that are eager to help those in desperate need. Many of them, more than 400,000, have fled to nearby Romania since the beginning of the Russian invasion. CNN's Miguel Marquez reports now for us from Romania on the long and perilous journey for refugees traveling there. They arrive by the hundreds. Normal Ukrainian citizens one day, refugees the next. It's so stressful, yes, because um, we have no idea what to do, (laughs) where to go, and when we will be able to return to our homes. Pavlin is from Kharkiv, Ukraine's second biggest city, which has been devastated by Russian artillery and rockets. When I was packing my clothes, she says, I thought it would all be over in three days. For many, just arriving on Romanian soil, emotional, 
One woman cries as a volunteer hands her a bottle of water. All the Romanian people are mobilized and are helped these people. Romanians stepping up, trying to make Ukrainians feel a little bit at home. Denis Stamatescu closed his restaurant in Costanza. He now serves meals free to refugees. We closed the restaurant and we are coming here to help these people. Chicken pork. Chicken pork. And for all those getting out, a few going back in. Alexander Pahomenka is returning to Mykolaiv. Russians have hammered the city. And you are willing to die for Ukraine. We all die, he says, then adds, I'm afraid to die, but I'm not a coward. Tatiana Bukietava from Odessa, along with her daughter Miroslava, their dog, and two cats. She says they left because of what they heard was happening in places already controlled by the Russians. I've heard about the violence, she says, and killings of peaceful people without any reason. She added, I had to leave. I was too stressed about it happening to me and my daughter. Now, look, the Romanian government says that the number of refugees in recent days has actually come down a little bit from Ukraine, but they are very concerned about the number of internally displaced in Ukraine. They think that there are many tens of thousands on the, on the border. And if and when the Russians continue their onslaught toward the West, that they will have another massive tidal wave of refugees coming into Romania and many other countries. Jake? Miguel Marquez in Romania, thank you so much for that report. Coming up next siding with Russia, siding against Ukraine, how Donald Trump's long history of praising Putin, dismissing Ukrainian concerns, may have, experts say, helped lay the groundwork for what we're seeing in Ukraine today. Stay with us. In our world lead, the war in Ukraine is entirely the fault and responsibility of one man, Vladimir Putin, though, of course, decades of misjudgments in Western foreign policy set the stage for him, as we have covered before. Recently, however, former President Donald Trump and his allies have been engaging in quite a bit of revisionist history about this matter. This is so sad because this would have never happened. If we had the Trump administration, there was no chance that this would happen. And I know him well. And this was not something that was going to happen at all. Trump, of course, failing to mention there his own actions and inactions that and that of his administration that may have enabled Putin in many ways. Instead of calling out Russia's decades of invasion in Georgia 2008, annexing Crimea from Ukraine in 2014, Trump to this day seems to find room to believe Putin, even praise him as a genius, quote unquote, genius for the brutal attack. Even some of Trump's former advisors wonder if his approach may have empowered the Russian president on the world stage. As the world watches Russian tanks rolling into Ukraine, a clearer picture comes into focus. Not only about Vladimir Putin's willingness to slaughter innocents in the name of restoring the old Soviet empire, but also... I would love to be able to get along with Russia. ...about how our former president consistently sent signals that he was not on Ukraine's side, he was on Putin's. On the very day Trump announced his presidential run in 2015, he made this clear. I was over in Moscow two years ago, 
And I will tell you, you can get along with those people and get along with them well. You can make deals with those people. Obama can't. The way he denigrated allies and spoke favorably uh, of Putin and of other authoritarians around the world kind of gave a clear signal both to American allies in the West and to Russia whose side this man would be on if he were in the White House. Trump said he would be looking into lifting sanctions against Russia for having annexed Crimea. And he seemed to buy Putin's argument that Russia's first military assault on Ukrainian sovereignty, taking Crimea in 2014, was not such a big deal. You know, the people of Crimea, from what I've heard, would rather be with Russia than where they were. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that it was annexed illegally against all international laws. Paul Manafort, Trump's second campaign chairman, had close ties to Russia. Paul Manafort has done an amazing job. Manafort was a lobbyist for a Russian-backed Ukrainian president for roughly a decade and was paid in part by Russian oligarchs, according to a 2020 Senate Intelligence Committee report. During Manafort's time as campaign chair, the campaign pushed sometimes bizarre and seemingly random disinformation that could have been written by the Kremlin. You had the NATO base in Turkey being under attack by terrorists. Uh, uh, you had a number of things that, that weren't appropriate to this campaign, were part of what Mr. Trump has been talking about. And when the Republican National Committee's 2016 platform proposed to provide lethal defensive weapons to Ukraine in the face of the Russian threat, that language was quickly tabled and softened, promising only appropriate assistance once Manafort and Trump's team got involved. That was a big victory for the Russians, and it underscored their sense that they were going to really win big if Trump won the White House, that they would have a ma major ally in the White House. Trump denied any direct involvement with the change of platform language. I wasn't involved in that. Honestly, Your I was not were. involved. Yeah, I was not involved in that. Once in office, Trump pushed the notion that the U.S. had moral equivalence with Russia even as perceived opponents of the Kremlin kept ending up dead or poisoned. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why well, you think our country's so innocent? Trump argued Russia should be given back its seat within the powerful G7 summit, even though its membership had been revoked as punishment for attacking Ukraine. I would rather see Russia in the G8 as opposed to the G7. I would say that the G8 is a more meaningful group than the G7. Absolutely. You have Trump lining up very clearly with Russia. You have him at a meeting with G7 leaders telling them, just forget about Ukraine. Ukraine is, is Russian. Let it go. And of course, the day after Trump fired FBI Director James Comey amid the investigation into possible coordination between Russia and the Trump campaign, the then president met with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and ambassador to the U.S. Sergei Kislyak where Trump revealed highly classified information to the pair. We had a very, very good meeting with uh, Mr. Lavrov, and it was, uh, I thought it was very, very good. Special counsel Robert Mueller's report found that Manafort and short-lived National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, who had been paid by Russian entities to attend and speak at this 2015 gala, where he literally dined with Putin, together pushed the nonsensical conspiracy theory that it was Ukraine, not Russia, that had meddled in the 2016 election. And don't forget, Ukraine hated me. They were after me in the election. They wanted Hillary Clinton to win. A prelude to the events that paved the way to Trump's first impeachment. 
In summer 2019, Trump ousted his ambassador to Ukraine at a critical time. Fighting had continued in the east with separatists backed by Russia's might and Ukraine was in desperate need of support from the U.S. Ukraine is in a war with, U- with Russia and the security assistance that we provide Ukraine is significant. Absent that security assistance and maybe even more importantly, the signal of support for Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity that would likely encourage Russia to pursue, to potentially escalate, to pursue further aggression. Weeks later, Trump had his now infamous call with the newly elected Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, where Zelensky asked for more anti-tank javelins to protect his country from the Russian threat. And Trump followed up with a request of his own. Trump wanted Ukraine, in exchange for that aid, to help him in his re-election campaign. By announcing an investigation into Joe Biden, the Democratic presidential candidate Trump feared the most, according to his aides, and into Biden's son, Hunter, who had a lucrative and ethically dubious position on the board of a Ukrainian gas company. It's just yet another way in which Trump very openly sided with Putin and dismissed the concerns and the needs of an important U.S. ally. Trump was being pushed behind the scenes by Defense Secretary Mark Esper, among others, to give the desperately needed military aid. And eventually Zelensky did get the weapons he asked for and an in-person meeting with Trump, though not the one he wanted in the Oval Office. We need support, real support. And uh, we thank everybody. Trump and his supporters today note that unlike during the administrations of Bush and Obama, Putin never invaded any country during the Trump years, which is true though Russia did significantly ramp up its military presence in Syria. But former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton said there could be a reason for that. In a second Trump term, I think he may well have withdrawn from NATO. And I think Putin was waiting for that. That signal had certainly been sent. Number one, NATO is obsolete. It's obsolete, and we pay too much money. They are delinquent. NATO is obsolete and has to be rejiggered. You had candidate Trump talking in this way, saying that NATO was obsolete, that he wanted to get along with Russia, that Russia was a superpower that we should take seriously and respect. I mean, that was music to Putin's ears. Behind closed doors, White House aides had to convince Trump to stand by NATO, according to The New York Times. I had my heart in my throat at that NATO meeting. I didn't know what the president would do. Uh, He called me up to his seat seconds before he gave his speech, and I said, look, go right up to the line, but don't go over it. It is a line Bolton fears would have been crossed if Trump had been reelected. Coming up next, the clues leading police to believe the same gunman may be responsible for a series of shootings targeting homeless men in two major American cities. Stay with us. In our national lead, a manhunt underway after a string of homeless men were attacked and even murdered. Five shootings over nine days, three in Washington, D.C., two in New York City, all in the middle of the night. Officials think they're connected, as CNN's Shimon Prokopes reports. Surveillance video is providing vital clues in the search for the killer who is preying on society's most vulnerable. Today, new video of a man that officials in New York City and Washington, D.C. are on the hunt for, suspected in a series of shootings targeting homeless men. What we know is that guns have been involved uh, in scenes in New York and D.C. uh, and that they have been matched ballistically. 
In a joint investigation, authorities say they believe this person is behind at least five shootings with similar circumstances that have left two men dead. The man they are looking for is suspected of three shootings in Washington at the beginning of the month, and then two more this past Saturday in New York City, which left one dead. New York City's Mayor Eric Adams says surveillance video of the weekend's attack showed an assassination. You know, it broke my heart. Uh, If anyone saw the video of what happened last night, uh, we responded to the scene and to the precinct. Uh, This was an intentional murder. I mean, he stood over him and and shot him in his head uh, for no reason at all but being homeless. And so we will catch him. The Washington ATF says there is a $55,000 reward as they look for tips on helping identify and arrest the suspect. In a statement released last night, Adams and Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser wrote that it is, quote, heartbreaking and tragic to know that in addition to all the dangers that unsheltered residents face, we now have a cold-blooded killer on the loose. At a vigil last night in New York City, emotions ran high. How many more homeless New Yorkers must die? Somehow, those experiencing street homelessness have become public enemy number one. And Jake, shortly in the next hour, we will get an update from officials, the NYPD police commissioner, as well as the mayor, traveling down to Washington, D.C., where they're going to hold a press conference, a joint press conference with officials there as this manhunt continues, Jake. All right, Shimon Prokopes in New York City, thank you so much. Let's discuss. Uh, Mayor Bottoms, let me start with you. you. You dealt with rising crime firsthand while you were mayor of Atlanta from 2018 to 2022. What do you make of the D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser and New York City Mayor Eric Adams' handling of these horrific shootings? Well, I'm very happy that they have identified a suspect. And anytime you have a vulnerable population uh, that is being victimized, it is of concern. But this is what cities have been facing big and small across the country, dealing with this, what I call COVID crime wave. We have seen an uptick in crime since 2020. Um, And unfortunately, all of the stressors uh, that were in place were made even worse during the pandemic. So anytime you're able to quickly identify a suspect, that's always a very, that's always very good news for the police department and for the public. Uh, But we must continue to deal with these systemic issues that are facing our communities because we are going to find ourselves in the same place again with an uptick in crime. And Scott Jennings, uh, as the mayor just mentioned, uh, violent crime climbed significantly during the COVID pandemic. When, When Republicans capitalize on the law and order issue uh, during election years. It, it usually uh, works. Um, it's horrible to talk about the politics of any sort of tragedy, but the crime that we're seeing in the major cities, including this horrific, these horrific shootings we just talked about, um, could have, a, there could be a result at the ballot box. Yeah, no question. Republicans, I think, are going to use the crime issue uh, in this midterm election, you're going to see Republicans point to Democrat-run cities across the country where violent crime is up. You're going to see Republicans point to Democrat-preferred policies that they say are weak on criminals, say in New York City, where uh, you've got the prosecutor there uh, and the mayor, uh, frankly, who are endorsing pretty liberal uh, views on uh, decriminalizing certain actions. Uh, and then you've got Joe Biden just a few weeks ago saying, I'd like to see other mayors and other people follow New York City's lead. You're going to see all of this 
in the context of the midterm election. And although uh, you may not want to talk about politicizing the issue of crime, it is a political issue in that your vote matters. You know, if you vote for people who want policy A versus policy B, these are the results you're going to get. So I think there's room to run for Republicans on this. And I think it's one of the reasons, Jake, why you saw Joe Biden come out in the State of the Union and try to separate himself from the defund the police uh, mantra that's taken hold in some quarters of the Democratic Party, because it's obviously quite unpopular. Yeah, what did you think of about that, Mayor Bottoms? Because obviously it's not just people in the cities who are affected by a rise in crimes. It's people in the surrounding area. And a lot of people think that it was a lot of voters in the suburbs of places like Philadelphia, Atlanta, elsewhere, uh, that delivered the presidency to Joe Biden. Well, what I will remind people specifically in Georgia is that the governor of Georgia, who is a Republican, is the chief law enforcement officer of our state per our state constitution. Uh, But also when you look at policies, when you look at some of the decriminalization efforts, they are centered on nonviolent offenders, nonviolent crimes. People, uh, leaders in cities and states across America are still very focused on addressing violent crime. But again, you have to look at it as a whole. It's the reason in Atlanta specifically that we took money from the American Rescue Funds to put it towards violence intervention work. Because you are either going to pay on the front end or you're going to pay on the back end. I sat as a judge for many years and what I saw uh, is that many times people came into court, they didn't have an education, they didn't have jobs, they, did, they didn't have access to mental health treatment, drug treatments, et cetera. So we have to make those important investments in those systemic areas while also focusing on getting violent offenders off of our streets, keeping them incarcerated once they get into court. I don't think uh, that's a partisan issue. We all agree on that. Uh, Scott, just a quick thought. I was wondering what you thought about the fact tonight there's a fundraiser for Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, who's been targeted for defeat by, by Donald Trump. So many people RSVP'd yes to her fundraiser that they had to move to a larger venue. Um, the donor interest isn't all for Cheney's reelection bid. I mean, part of it is about boosting uh, a, a champion in the Republican Party, within the Republican Party, of somebody who uh, stands for different things than, than Donald Trump. What do you think is at stake here? Well, for Cheney, obviously, she's built up a lot of friends over the years. The Cheney family is quite popular among a lot of donors, and so I'm not surprised that she's having good success on that. I do think there's a desire, and the polling bears this out. A lot of Republicans don't want to nominate Donald Trump again. I think what's working in his favor is that you may have a number of people running for the nomination. So just like in 2016, as you remember, it would be quite easy for him, I think, to get the nomination if he faces a hugely fragmented field. I'm not sure there's a huge market for what Liz Cheney is selling in a national primary, but uh, there's certainly some market for it, and I suspect she might uh, she might give it a whirl, and she'd obviously have some support if she did. Scott Jennings, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up, Dolly Parton doing something she almost never does. She's bowing out. We'll explain next. Stay with us. Baby, I'm burning may sound a little like rock and roll, but according to Dolly Parton, it's not enough for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The beloved musical icon is taking herself out of consideration for the 2022 class of inductees. Parton says she doesn't feel right. She doesn't feel like she's earned the right to be honored in that way, but that she's now inspired to hopefully put out a great rock and roll album 
in the future. I'd bet on her to put out an amazing album, whatever genre she attempts. Also, this is a note for you, all you Dolly Parton fans out there. You might not want to miss my interview with the country music legend for our new CNN Plus show, Jake Tapper's Book Club. I'm going to speak with her along with co-author James Patterson about their brand new uh, new novel that's out right now. Here's a preview. You famously broke out of a partnership in your career. It led to a I Will Always Love You, I think, as one of yeah. uh, that song came from I'm that relationship. I'm good at everything. But <laughs> how important was it for you to deliver that message? You've got to really, you got to be tough, whether you like it or not, if you're going to make it. I felt like God gave me a talent, and he meant for me to use it. And I always depended on him for extra strength when I hit the wall with certain people because I was stubborn too. kind of got that from my dad and I got a little stubborn streak. If I believe in something, I won't let it go and I won't let somebody take it from me. The full interview with Dolly Parton and James Patterson will be available when CNN Plus launches on March 29th. A reminder to join the book club. Sign up for our newsletter. Go to CNN.com slash book club newsletter. CNN.com slash book club newsletter. Until tomorrow, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok. You can also tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Thanks for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.